Um, Israel's prophets were tasked with saying very difficult things uh, to a people who found themselves living and governing in ways that were upstream or against the grain from what God intended for his world. So at times, prophets were voices of judgment and anger, especially around the issues of injustice and abuses of power. Um, These voices, these prophets, predictably were pretty irritating uh, to the ears who had grown deaf to the presence and the ways of God in the world. Uh, The rabbi Abraham Heschel uh, said that the prophets were poets and preachers. And those are two very annoying annoying categories of people right there. (laughs) Because sometimes their words bother people. They get underneath uh, their skin. But they're also voices of hope. The prophet's primary job is to reinstall hope into a people that may have lost that. They speak into some of the darkest times in Israel's history. Uh, The prophets often spoke into very terrible situations of national and spiritual distress. They were channels of a promised future with a faithful and ever-present and ever-loving God. Some of the greatest lines um, from the Bible come from these hopeful passages of the prophets, like the words of Isaiah. Maybe you know some of these, especially if you've seen Remember the Titans. Um, But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their what? Strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. Or the words of Jeremiah to a beleaguered nation of people in exile, speaking on behalf of the Lord, saying, For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Or the words that Martin Luther King infused in his message at Washington from Amos chapter 5, but let justice roll down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. These are so inspiring. Or these, like, I love this one, he not busy being born is busy dying. Well, that last one's Bob Dylan, but he would have fit right in. (laughs) He would have fit right in with these people. And today's reading from the prophet Ezekiel is one of those hopeful passages, this story of the Valley of the Dry Bones, perhaps one of the most famous Old Testament um, pieces of imagery and symbol uh, that we know of. It stands on its own, even if you don't know the context. It just speaks so much words, so much hope in its words uh, that we might find as we read them. I love how it begins, that the hand of the Lord came upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of a valley. And then Ezekiel says it was full of bones. Now, historically, just to put the setting in place, we are at the beginning of uh, when the tension between Israel and Babylon is starting to reach its boiling point. And Israel is on the verge of being systematically dismantled and the city of Jerusalem eventually destroyed. This is stuff we know from outside the Bible. This is not a fairy tale. This is hard facts about what is about to happen 
to these people were at the beginning of the 6th century BC. And that century will mostly be marked as the worst time in the history of its people. A time of spiritual and national trauma. Nothing less than that. The first deportations are taking place in the time of Ezekiel. This is the great dislocation, the beginnings of that. This is the time of the exile. This is what we call it. An exile is when you are away forcibly from your land, from your home, from your history, from your people, from the streets that you played on as kids. There's a homesickness, but there's also this sickness of the soul. You're losing faith. And Ezekiel has this moment, this vision from the Lord, and he finds himself in a valley, and all that he sees are bones on bones on bones all over the ground. So now we're in the world of images and symbols. These are the tools of the prophets. These are not literal things. That would be way too easy. These are metaphors, and metaphors have a power to them that's well beyond the literal. It's why songs and poetry and art speak so uh, clearly to us. And the Lord has shown Ezekiel what Ezekiel already knows, that Israel is empty of its energy, of its faith, of its purpose. And though they are surviving, they're not alive. Can you relate to that? Week to week, day to day, hour to hour, surviving, but not really living. It was full of bones. Later in the passage, the very next verse actually, it says these bones were very dry. It's the image of a faith emptied out in pieces all over the valley. Later in the text, it speaks of the people saying, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. Here we get the real meaning of what's happening. It's a faith and a hope that's been lost. Who of us has not been able to say those very words All of us have been through times when our faith just runs out of breath. Amen? When there's no answer, when there's loss, when there's doubt, when there's pain, when there's struggle and suffering. All of you have memories of a time when faith was vibrant for you. All of you. Maybe you were a kid, a teenager. Maybe it was last year. Maybe you have, even though... There may be difficulties in your church history. There are moments where you remember feeling at one with God. Whatever that may be for you. Maybe for you it was like, gosh, I used to, I did, I used to read the Bible, I used to pray, I used to do all these things. I was involved, I was happy among my community of Christians and friends. We all have memories of a time when our faith felt healthier. Lindsay, who works here with me, we will oftentimes, or sometimes, not often, but sometimes we'll talk about, um, when people ask, but we'll talk about our, what we call downtown days of the church. If you were here during the downtown days, do you remember this? Some of you are left. Uh, Our downtown days as a church, and how those three years 
maybe not for you, but for us, for me and Lindsay, uh, were some of the worst years of our entire time at this church, both on a personal and a professional level, but also on a deeply spiritual level. We were completely out of breath. We hit it pretty well with our commitment to you and a commitment to our work, but underneath the appearance of all the togetherness and organization were things like depression, tiredness, therapy, and worst of all, a faith that was drying up. There were so many Sundays where I was just saying the words. We were just singing the songs, making the coffee, setting up those damn chairs, you know, all for Jesus. But it felt real quiet for us. I'm not saying God didn't work in those times. He did. In fact, looking back, there's so much that made us who we are today. It was actually out of those days when we landed here that we instituted a new organizational value for our church, which we've, I don't think we've ever shared with you because we're bad at leadership. (laughs) But that organizational value was that church should never be stressful for anyone. And it will be from this day forward, we would say, a place of rest and joy and divine encounter. Because God is about life, not death. And this church will seek to be the same, a place of hope and fullness. That's our goal that life is breathed in, not sucked out. These are the words we find in our text today when Ezekiel says, thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. This is the language of creation. If you go all the way back to Genesis 2, chapter 7, then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of Life and he became a living being. This is the language of creation. Life is in the breath, and the breath of life is the gift of God. Now, here's the thing I love a good store, I love going into a store that is just well laid out. It does something to me. I don't know if you're like this. My wife and I love to go to REI. We go almost every Saturday. Now, I know you're thinking, that guy looks like a guy who goes to REI. (laughs) It's true. We go. And we just love how it's laid out. We just love looking around and touching things. And REI is a place of like, uh, I feel like I could do something. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to get that rope someday. I'm going to do something with that rope, you know? I can make something of myself, you know? But I think my favorite stores to go in are bookstores. Bookstores are just this fascinating piece of real estate. They're very orderly, you know? They're by genre and author, and you you know how it goes. You've been to a library. You've been to Barnes & Noble. They're very orderly. It's just very put together, and you walk in, and you just feel, it feels good. 
It's inviting. But bookstores are also this like monument to success. Think about this. Every single person in that store on the shelf got published. They all won. They worked toward their dream and it worked. They got published. So the shelves are just filled with success story. I mean, the the whole space is inspiring. And maybe like REI, you walk in there, I, I know I do, I'm just like, oh, I need to read that. I need to get that in my life, you know? But it's mostly for me, the setup. Just the orderliness, the beauty, the smell, the success, it's all there. And sometimes when I think about my faith, um, I do think about something like a bookstore, carefully set up, carefully ordered, but also very visual in its reminders of success through hard work of putting in the time to get to a certain place that feels victorious, a series of successful arrivals, kind of like trophies, come into my office, see all these books and degrees to justify all the sweat. But maybe you're like me, because in reality, when I look back over the life of my faith from a child to to today, it's really less like a bookstore and more like like a pile of discarded planning journals half-read devotional books, amen? Like all these good intentions just piled up. It's a bunch of different Bibles that are stacked up as like this monument to this false hope that maybe this Bible will help me read scripture more or better. Maybe this thing will help me be a better Christian. Now don't mishear me. I love God with all my heart. Jesus is central Uh, to my personhood. And the upkeep of my faith and relationship with God is a top-tier priority for me. I'm just saying that there are times when all the effort is not enough. Have you experienced that before? You just keep doing it? Now, some of you are like, I don't do anything. Great. But those who do, you understand this struggle. It's never enough. I will cause breath to enter you and you will live. The history of Judaism and Christianity is filled with these certain practices that are there to keep our faith engaged. You can probably guess what many of these are, practices such as reading scripture, meditation, prayer, pilgrimage, serving others, etc. All kinds of things. But the secret to these is to know that these are not necessarily the cause of the growth and depth in our faith. They're not. They're merely tools that are available to us to do what I I like to call arranging the encounter with God. Arranging the encounter. See, God is the one who breathes life into your faith, not you. Try as you might, it doesn't last long. It is the gift that we receive when we are most aware of God's presence. So encounter with God is the biggest thing that we can hope for. God doesn't show up. We do. 
And all those ancient practices are there to arrange that encounter, to get us to a place where heaven and earth overlap. And faith begins to struggle when we start to believe the lie that we can just get ourselves there with all the effort or that the effort itself is the key. That Protestant work ethic, you gotta get up, put your knees on the floor and do this thing. Okay, that's fine. The effort is not the key, it's the encounter. And if we're not aware of the encounter, faith begins to struggle. God says, I will cause breath to enter you and you will live. And that's really hard in our world where we do everything. We make ourselves. But God says, I will cause breath to enter you. It sounds passive, doesn't it? Well, it is. We know this as the Sabbath rests. In the Jewish tradition, the Sabbath is the day of the week to rest and to give up any desire to produce or to be of any use to the world just to simply be. Again, Abraham Heschel, the great rabbi, has said that six days a week, the world has our hands. Amen? That's true. The work that we do, it has our hands. But on the seventh day, our soul belongs to someone else. The Sabbath is the anti-resilience moment of the week time to give up. It's the original quiet quitting, if you will, except that it's quite overt. And a day of nothingness is fuller than you might imagine, as it has the power and the intention to arrange the encounter where heaven and earth overlap. A day to give up on all the effort to build this thing and to let God breathe into the relationship. 14th century theologian Meister Eckhart said, God is not found in the soul by adding anything, but by the process of subtraction. Make space. I will cause breath to enter you, and you will live. This passage from Ezekiel is also read at the Easter vigil And the reason is obvious. It is a resurrection story, a resurrection of faith. It's a reminder that God breathes life into us where there is no more life to give. I will cause breath to enter you and you will live.